WTTM 227. You're listening to the Window to the Magic.com podcast. Brought to you by WindowToTheMagic.com. Surround yourself with the magic. Hello, and welcome to A Window to the Magic. My name is Paul, and as always, I will be your guide through the wonderful world of Disney sound experiences. This show is an audio trip through the world of the Disney theme parks and resorts, and this is the place where you get to use your ears to surround yourself with the magic. Well, hello everyone, and welcome to episode number 227 of A Window to the Magic. Brought to you by Destinations in Florida Travel, Bluestone Creative Group, the Window to the Magic podcast app for iPhone and iPod Touch, and by listeners like you, subscribers to the Window to the Magic DVD of the Month Club. Please visit windowtothemagic.com for more information. This week, TJ steps into the window to the Magic Studios for a very special show. Now, a lot of you have been emailing and asking for some good old informational shows on the people and places that make Disney special. Basically, you're looking for some old Patrick-style shows. Well, two weeks ago, Magic Joe did a fabulous job telling you all about Bill Justice. Feedback on that show was amazing. This time, as TJ steps up to the mic, he will bring you the story of the First Lady of Imagineering, Harriet Burns. One hundred and forty-four thousand. That's the number of people employed by the Walt Disney Company today. If you add them up over the years, I don't know, a half million, give or take. Today on our show, we're going to look at just one. Harriet Burns, who is often called the first female Imagineer. That is, the first woman to work in the male-dominated world of theme park design. Today's show is going to be something a little different. I've gone out with a recorder, and either by phone or in person, I've talked to a bunch of people. Bob Gurr, Blaine Gibson, Rolly Crump. And I've asked them not only about Harriet, but what was it like to work in the model shop over at WED back in the 1950s and the 1960s. Now, when I was growing up on TV, you know, on Sunday nights and reruns, I'd see Walt Disney there in the model shop, working with his Imagineers. And it always looked so organized and structured, but that's not really how it was at all. And so I've got some good stories about that. In the second half of today's show, I have an interview with Harriet Burns' daughter, Pam Burns Clare, about what it was like to grow up with your mother, the first person working with all these crazy men down at the Walt Disney Studio 
and theme park design. But to set things up so it all makes sense, you're going to need to know a few things about Harriet Burns. Well, first of all, maybe I should explain my connection to Harriet. Um, while doing some research years ago, um, I first started talking to Harriet. Harriet lived you know, in you know, my hometown, and so she was very accessible. She was always happy to answer questions. But to give you some background information, she was born in 1928. When she got out of school, she worked for a while, designing shop windows and building props for the Dunes Hotel. She also was one of the principal designers for Santa's Village. And Santa's Village is an early theme park in the mountains of L.A., where the entire area is laid out like a town in the North Pole. In 1955, she applied for a job with the Walt Disney Company. Her first job was building props for the Mickey Mouse Club, but that soon expanded into work for the park. At that time, there was only one park, Disneyland. She built um, models that were displayed in Storybook Land. She built the dioramas for Sleeping Beauty's Castle. She built a design model for the Matterhorn. She built multiple design models for the Matterhorn. She colored the first fish and mermaids for the submarine lagoon. She feathered tiki birds. She created pirates. And then in 1986, she retired. She attended a lot of conventions. She was often a featured speaker. Two years ago, in 2008, she was diagnosed with a heart condition requiring surgery. When she went in for the surgery, there was complications and then an infection, which eventually claimed her life. And after her death... Her daughter went through all of her stuff at her house and learned a few things about her mother that she didn't know. Okay, that's our setup. Here's part one, the model shop. Next to the machine shop was a, uh, a little building, kind of a long, thin building, which people called the boxcar. And it had some big windows, and I noticed in that shop was uh, two people working in there, and every day I would see Walt Disney going there. This is Bob Gurr, who started with the company in 1954. And very shortly, I would wander in on my uh, morning break time, and I'd go in, and I met Fred Jurger, and I met uh, Harriet. And I was fascinated by uh, what they were doing. There, there weren't too many people in that little shop. It was just two of them, and, and maybe um, one or two other people would come in there. But Walt was always there. It seemed to be, uh, of all the things in the studio, all the places that Walt could be, he liked to be in that little model shop as, as much as he could. I was wondering when the first time that you met her was and the first time that you worked on a project together. Well, I think the first time I met her, actually, I didn't uh, pay too much attention. I just knew there was a new girl on the block somewhere. I don't know where, because she always had a wonderful smile and a good morning, wherever you were, or hello, or whatever, and that was where I noticed her. You could help notice her. She was a pretty girl. This is Blaine Gibson, who started with the company in 1939. And uh, actually... Uh, uh, I later learned that she was working out in the model shop, which is a kind of an annex, right in the studio lot, but not, I worked in the animation building, so uh, it was uh, entirely different. But uh, it was great uh, one day when I went out there and I saw that there's not only these guys working out there, there's this 
pretty girl over there working with the machines and everything, just right with them, and that was Harriet. She could build anything. She could have her hands in glue. She could be running the bandsaw. She could do all, all kinds of, uh, you know, what men would normally be doing. And she's doing that there with a beautiful scarf and her hair all quaffed up really nice. And, she, and I never saw her get any sawdust on her. It's like, you know, shops are full of woodwork and and uh, and you work on styrofoam and the, the little dust from that goes everywhere. She never got any on her. It was like, here's this, um, this beautiful uh, model out of New York and she's fooling around making models uh, in the model shop, but she's not like a, uh, you know, somebody with a, with her hair covered in a bandana and an apron or something like that. She was never like that. She was, uh, you know, like kind of a model, kind of a star. And uh, and again, she could listen to Fred's stories and some of some of Fred's stories. I I know I heard one there one day. I I wouldn't even dealt there tell anybody. Um, but I I was uh, horrified. It was kind of a sex story. And as Fred told this thing. Harriet never never changed her smile. She just went right along with uh, Fred Jurger's uh, story. First of all, you have to understand something that growing up in animation and working at the studio, everybody at the studio had a tremendous sense of humor. And there was always little gags being played on and crazy stuff going on uh, throughout the whole company in those days, which was kind of really neat. This is the voice of Rolly Crump. In fact, one time in the model shop when Walt was over and we were going through something, and I said to Walt, I said, you know, you should have a, a, an office over here. And he looked at me and smiled and said, no, he says, I don't want an office over here. He says, I don't come over here to work. He says, I come over here to have fun. So, and that was really true. That was the whole thing there. And um, I'll tell you about the model shop and Harriet. Uh, I met Harriet when I first started working um, uh, in the model shop on a little I was building some mobiles for Children's Hospital downtown LA and that was the first time I'd gotten involved in the model shop and Harriet was such a cute little thing and she was always dressed so perfectly and she looked like a little Prisapaya girl When Disneyland opened in 1955 not all the areas were complete in Fantasyland, there was a boat ride called Canal Boats of the World. But really, if you were to go on this ride, you'd just go by well, dirt hills and empty banks. There wasn't a whole lot to see. And so, in 1956, Walt, who collected miniatures his whole life, decided on the banks of Canal Boats of the World, there would be storybook villages. And Storybook Land was the first attraction that Harriet worked on for the park. And what was very interesting, I thought, was in like 1956, rather than building just models, they, uh, the two of them built all the uh, storybook land uh, buildings, all those little scale buildings, and these were uh, what would be production uh, models rather than uh, uh, developmental models. The developmental model is going to stay indoors and it's only going to be for purposes of design. But the storybook land, those are made out of uh, plywood, fiberglass plywood and a lot of uh, highly durable things that could go outside in, in, uh, you know, in a rainy uh, and sun environment. And they, they built virtually all of those themselves. In 1958, 
Harriet was given the job of translating the image of the Matterhorn into a workable show building to house a roller coaster. Now, this was 1958, before the internet, before DVDs, before you could get books off Amazon. Tell me a little bit about the process of building. You built three models in all for the Matterhorn? Well, the little one you see in picture books with Walt showing the model, I did that one, and the reason was Fred Jerger would have ordinarily done it, but he was tied up on some of the production. This, of course, is Harriet herself. So they sent me up to the the uh, 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 Walt's office, you know, not, I mean, uh, what do you call it, the building, uh, the major building. And uh, there was a little wing that actually was technically the wed wing, but people didn't know it as that. And so uh, Vic was down there, and they gave me a little office next to Vic's, and they had me uh, bring clay and junk, you know, to make a, a model of the Matterhorn. And so Vic would give me some statistics, and I built that little model out of... Um, well, cardboard, well, when I say cardboard, illustration board and um, clay. But I did it in layers, like you do a layer cake. Mm-hmm. So if it didn't work, you'd take out one layer and, and ex, you know, expand it or do something else, and then you could shift the layers in there. So, well, that's, you know, I stayed up there, I don't know, a month, maybe, maybe not that long, and uh, made that small model. And then, uh, but we didn't have anything to go by. You know, today's an entirely different day. And we had a, a full-page spread on um, uh, Life magazine uh, of, of the Matterhorn, and we had um, uh, uh, postcards people had sent. And maybe one was from Walt. Mm-hmm. He could have he could have done that. And because I just remember they were, you know, push-pinned up on the bulletin board, and I didn't read the other side of them. <laughs> and then one was um, an Encyclopedia Britannica or something. Uh, no, no, Geographic of the uh, Matterhorn. And that's all we had. That was it. The last area of Harriet's job was to be what we would call today a figure finisher. And that's someone who takes a character and adds uh, paint and hair and clothes and maybe even feathers to give that character personality and presence. But uh, my job was to do the physical aspect of the parents. But Harriet uh, took it much further than that. This is Blaine Gibson talking about the tiki room. And uh, put the uh, put the fur cloth on. And mine would be a shape of a parrot. He'd have his legs. His eyes were already in. Everything was already there. But when she got through with it, he was a colorful, real parrot. And we had four of those, as I remember. We had had not only parrots, we had other birds. And one that took a lot of work was... We had a whole group of cockatoos come down. Well, this was the same parrot, mind you. So we got a lot of mileage out of those parrots. Wow. But she had a whole entirely different feather do on those. They had to have short tails. And they had cockatoo heads. You know how they're, they have this top knot. It's a very delicate top knot. She put those on. And that was very important. The uh, model shop moved in 1961 over to uh, 800 Sonora, where um, wet enterprises, rather than being in, squirreled away in a whole bunch of little rooms in the, uh, in the studio, they were all together in one building. And of course, about half of that building was a model shop, because by the time we were designing the World's Fair and adding things to Disneyland, 
there was a lot more model uh, making. So we had a lot more people in the model shop. But Fred and Harriet kind of had a little northwest corner that was uh, always seemed to be the uh, the center of, en- center of enjoyment and the center of fun because, sure, they were working really hard every day uh, building all these uh, either study models or uh, highly detailed uh, final models, but there was a lot of joshing and a lot of giggling going on, and uh, I just found myself uh, with that building because I was much uh, closer to that shop uh, much like the other shop, that every time uh, we do our 10 o'clock break, I'd go over in the corner, and there's uh, Fred, and there's uh, Harriet, and there's this bird cage, and this bird was kind of goofing off all the time. In the 1960s, there are actually two moves. The web designers, the theme park designers, first moved to Sonora Street, and then around the corner, they took over the old Glendale Airport as well. If you ever saw Walt Disney on the Sunday night TV show, walking around the model shop looking at uh, models of upcoming attractions, it was probably in one of these two buildings. In this clip, this is from 1965, Walt's walking around the model shop, and there in front of him is Harriet Burns sitting at a desk, making figures and putting them at miniature tables and umbrellas outside the Plaza Inn. Now here's uh, another way of going about a project. This is a one-eighth inch to a foot scale model of the new restaurant that we're putting in. We call it the Plaza Inn. It's right off the plaza. And it's going to be a, a period restaurant, a period about 1880, 90, with uh, beautiful interiors and the solarium and all of that. And the people can come in here, get their food. They can eat inside or they can go out and sit in the garden. They can sit there and watch people and enjoy themselves and and the food's going to be very good, too. Now, this is Harriet here. Who Hi, happens Harriet. to be uh, putting in the little umbrellas and the tables for the scale model. Actually, this is the size of people right there. That's a people. <laughs> and so as a kid, this was the image I had of what it was like to work at the Disney studio. I saw these shows in reruns, but, you know, still, everything seemed so ordered and directed. People were calm. Everyone was focused intently on their work. And this, well, this isn't exactly what it was like to work there. We used to have uh, yo-yo contests. We'd stop during the middle of the day, and myself and a couple of other guys, we'd have a yo-yo contest to see who the best yo-yo guy was. We also had, we played frisbee. You know, we threw frisbees completely across the model shop, over models and everything, and... uh, uh, actually, um, I'm trying to think of uh, uh, all the different people that played Frisbee with us, um, which was great. And then um, then we also did handstand walking contests. I remember one day, uh, you know, we were quite active in doing stuff. I mean, it was just crazy. And we were having this handstand walking contest, and there was two or three of us walking around the model shop on our hands. And the, the lawyer came in from lunch. Of course, he was in a suit and a and a vest and everything. And he said, what are you guys doing? He said, well, we're having a handstand walking contest. He says, can I join in? And we said, sure. Well, he takes off his coat, jumps into a handstand, and just took off around the model shop and down the hallway. We didn't realize that he'd been a gymnast in high school. That bird that was mentioned earlier, that was a minor bird shipped in from Hawaii. His name was Joker. 
He lived in a small cage between Harriet and Fred's desk. They tried to teach him people's names. They also taught him to swear like a sailor. And um, so we were always used to the bird. The bird would kind of talk to himself, read, say something to people. And then if they wanted to be quiet, they'd put a little cover on the cage. But one day, Walt was there, as he he usually is, and there was some discussion about a a model. And um, Walt said something, which I think was a little bit exaggerated. And there was a big pause, and that minor bird said, Oh, the hell you say? And the whole place came to a halt. There was looks going around that room um, that was utterly fascinating. Uh, like, neither Fred nor Harriet wanted to let on. They owned the bird. And Walt was not about to uh, recognize the bird. But you could see Walt do a... Uh, one of his famous uh, eyebrow lifts, and uh, after a minute or two, why the, the regular conversation uh, resumed. But the next thing I noticed was the, the bird was covered up. And if from watching all of those old TV shows, you got the idea that there was always a science behind Imagineering? Well, that was true some of the time, but certainly not all of the time. I think most people would be surprised how often household products went into the mix. One of the ones that I really love is the story about the hyenas in Small World. This is Harriet's daughter, Pam Burns Clare. And the, the hair wasn't right. It was too flat or too sticking out or something. And, and Walt said, fix that. And so my mom sent the messenger boy to Thrifty's for home, Tony Home Perms. And as he was checking out with 10 Tony Home Perms, the, the checker said, what are you going to do with these, this young 21-year-old kid or whatever? He said, you don't even want to know. <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, they permed these hyenas' hair, and uh, Walt liked it. Now, most of the men at WED came out of the animation department. And these animators had a tradition at Disney dating back to the 1930s of gag drawings. And the gag drawings almost always had some sort of sexy element to them. They'd be the type of thing, well, a bunch of girls in bikinis chasing after Mickey Mouse. You could publish them now in the New Yorker, but the girls were really pretty, and the bikinis, they were really small. They were, uh, yeah, they were very sexy, but they were humorous. You know, in fact, you know, when you're in animation, you always did stuff like that. All the all the guys in animation would do some little you know, uh, smutty drawings, but they were humorous. There was not, no pornography to speak of, you know. So what happened was, uh, basically, uh, I was trying to save up some money for my daughter's bicycle. And I was buying her first little bicycle, so I was talking to Harriet and Fred about that. And meanwhile, when I was in animation, I, all of us in animation used to draw kind of smutty little cartoons. And so I brought all my little smutty cartoons out, and of course Fred and, and Harriet just loved them, and they wanted to keep them in the model shop. Well then, Harriet came up with this brilliant idea that she would show my little smutty drawings to anybody that would come in from out there, whether painters or carpenters, or but they had to pay a dime. So she had a little tin can to put the dimes in, and then she'd let, let them look at them, but she'd only let one person at a time look at them and so she was kind of filling up that little tin can with dimes for my daughter's bicycle which I thought was really kind of cute 
But that is the kind of stuff you could get away with in those days. You could never do this anymore. Harriet worked at WED, which was later called Walt Disney Imagineering, until 1986. But the last project she worked personally on, with Walt, was the Pirates of the Caribbean. She made models so that Walt could see the entire attraction laid out there in the model shop. Walt didn't live to see the actual attraction in place at Disneyland, but he saw the models. So Harriet worked with me on the Pirates a lot. And one of the reasons I liked to have her do that when I got them finished, we wanted Walt to see them, you know, before they were, someone else came in and, and really quickly smudged on paint without the feeling that Harriet could get. Because when she got through, well, these pirates, it looked, they looked like dirty old pirates, you know. <laughs> and that's kind of what we wanted. We wanted them to be funny, but we didn't want them to be, uh, we didn't want them to be uh, pretty. We wanted them to be believable. That's the word we wanted. And there again, Harriet could make them believable because the skin had paint that showed the blood shining through, you know, and that was good. In 1986, Harriet retired. She moved to Santa Barbara. She spent a lot of her time talking to groups about her work with Walt Disney Imagineering. She was always a favorite with the fans. She was bright. She was funny. She was quick on her feet. And then in 2007, she started to have chest pains. At first, she thought maybe she had pneumonia or the flu, but it was more serious than that. Yeah, the last time that um, I'd seen her, we had a uh, an event, of course, at the studio, and she was getting pretty frail, so I walked her up out of the stage uh, from the theater, and we went up and came down the steps, and then uh, we had to do some book signing and stuff, and then we went up to uh, uh, the Rotunda uh, restaurant up on top of the uh, uh, executive building there at the studio lot, and uh, we had, you know, Richard Sherman and his wife and uh, Marty and Blaine and uh, I think it was Orlando Franti was there and I was there and and uh, with Harriet and we all we all sat at Bob Iger's table, this kind of a little corner table there, kind of out of the way. And I remember uh, I took some pictures there and we just had the grandest, grandest time and it was quite apparent that uh, you know she was really looking quite frail. You know, her, her eyes seemed to be kind of sunken a little bit. And um, so that was a very vivid uh, moment, and I never saw her again. I talked to Harriet, too, a few weeks before her surgery. She expected to fully recover. But the loss here somehow seems larger. All the artists that worked with Walt Disney personally, well, they're now in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. It feels a little like the end of an era. No, it seems kind of funny, you know. She she really didn't like being the idea of 80. 80 sounds like a terrible number. And uh, I have to stop and laugh, and I think, good God, I'm 78. That's all. In fact, 78 and some months, so I'm, I'm a, maybe a year and a half from being 80, which is, still sounds like an awful number, but... Uh, Good gosh, I get up early in the morning every day, and I just bounce out of bed with no pain. I uh, mountain bike, uh, try to at least once a week, weather uh, permitting, 
and uh, go to the gym four or five days a week, and I'm active at everything, and it's like, good gosh, uh, when am I supposed to feel old? <laughs> so it's, it's weird to have these numbers way up in the 70s and heading towards an 80 where a lot of people never made 80. <laughs> 80 is the new 22. Oh, is that what it is? I think so, yeah. <laughs> Coming up, part two, an interview with Harriet's daughter. This episode of Paul Berry's A Window to the Magic is brought to you by Destinations in Florida Travel. Have you received your free Disney cruise? Visit destinationsinflorida.com WTTM to find out how you can qualify for a free Disney cruise when you book a 2010 Adventures by Disney vacation. That's destinationsinflorida.com WTTM. This episode is also brought to you by Window to the Magic's brand new podcast app for iPhone and iPod Touch. Get mobile access to all Window to the Magic audio episodes, plus exclusive content such as wallpaper, bonus audio, and much, much more. This is the newest and best way to surround yourself with the magic, and it's the best $3 that you will ever spend on a Window to the Magic podcast app, of course. Search Window to the Magic in the iTunes App Store for more information. Harriet Burns was my mom, and she was hired as the first female Imagineer in uh, 1955. She actually wasn't hired as an Imagineer. She was hired to do props and some sets for the Mickey Mouse Club, which was in full swing then. And within months, Disneyland was opening, and maybe she proved herself. I'm not sure. I was only three years old. Um, But they found that she had the ability to use power tools and work with the guys. Um, I think our listeners would be um, interested to know what was it like to grow up around the first female Imagineer? What was it like to have Harriet Burns as your mother? Well, it was a mixed bag because women of the 50s generally were at-home moms, and my picture of them was kind of like Leave it to Beaver's mom, June Cleaver or Ozzie and Harriet. And uh, there were times when I missed having that at-home mom in her apron with, you know, turkey pot pie ready <laughs> homemade <laughs> turkey pot pie or or um you know homemade dinner and for the most part we ate kind of instant food not what we would call fast food today but it was it was uh she came home on a work schedule and um at first when i was little my dad was with me cuz his schedule was more flexible working uh as an actor and training as an actor and uh doing stock market trading but then as he got a regular salary job, I was in daycare and nursery school and, and had housekeepers at home. 
So I missed having that at-home mom, but then as the movies would come out and I'd get to go to the preview at the studio or I'd get to meet the Mouseketeers, one of my earliest memories is having the Mouseketeers and Walt present me with a stuffed lady and the tramp dog that I still have. It bounced on an elastic leash. And um, I always remember the Mouseketeers as bright and cheery with their little mouse ears. Um, So those were perks. So it was a mixed bag. My mom brought these perks along with her career, but she wasn't the at-home mom with brownies and her apron, and she never attended my Girl Scout meetings. One of the things that your uh, mom told me a few years ago was that you talked her into staying a couple times. I did. That was later. (laughs) That was later. (laughs) I guess when I was in about junior high, um, somewhere in that age, group 12-ish, she was thinking about quitting. I'm not sure why. Um, and I was studying Switzerland, and she was working on the Matterhorn, and um, I didn't want her to leave because I had to help her. I had her. I needed her to help me with the Switzerland project. That could have been the difference between an A and That's a B right. right there. That's right. <laughs> um, did your mom ever take you over to the studio or over to uh, Imaginarian in Glendale to see where she worked? Well, we picked her up. You picked her up? Yeah, we would pick her up, me and my dad, and um, sometimes we would go in and sometimes she would just be waiting outside, and it was always a treat to go in and see what she was up to, and it wasn't momentous because that was just my mom's workplace, like any kid's parent's workplace, but it was interesting, and um, sometimes it was really interesting. (laughs) The last time I went through was when they were working on the Pirates of the Caribbean, and the pirates were in all kinds of playful and lewd positions. (laughs) <laughs> and clothing and garb, and they were messing with each other. Yeah. And after that, they uh, tightened up security. I guess that was when the audio animatronics were starting to catch on and other studios were wanting to imitate that, and so they shut it down even for families, and so the best we could do was wait outside the gate or tell the guard we were here, and he would phone her and have her come out, and eventually she was driving herself. And eventually it was okay. Now, I know that um, there were some pretty good cast-offs that your mom brought home (laughs) over the years. There was some good Disney loot that ended up at your house. A few things ended up at our house. What ended up there? Well, the best loot, as far as I was concerned as a kid, was when the Candy Mountain model they were working on, which preceded the Matterhorn, got canceled. Walt and John Hench had a little consultation and inspection and concluded that it was too sweet, too much sweet and not enough balanced meal. Well, maybe you could tell us, before you tell us um, the story about the model, what what the Candy Mountain was intended to be at Disneyland. All I know is it was a ride that you would go in the train and go around. Oh, maybe I can help a little bit here. Okay. Um, I was a kid. Right. It was one of the trains. It wasn't the the main train. It was going to be added as part of uh, Storybook Land. And oh. uh, the Casey Jr. train was going to go around right. it and through it. Uh-huh. And then the Storybookland boats were going to go into the mountain. And once inside the mountain, um, Walt had recently purchased the rights to some of the um, uh, Oz books. And so you'd find Dorothy and some of the other Oz characters inside, which is what you're going to find once you're inside the mountain. Uh-huh. So that's the mountain that they were working on. In right. 50, I want to say 56 or 57, somewhere around there. Uh-huh. I was in the third grade when the mountain model got canceled, and she brought home rock candy. She brought home uh, rock candy from from the mountain? From the model. Okay, from the model. 
the, the model involved lots of specialized candy that they had ordered from Switzerland. There we go with Switzerland again, and, and um, specialized chocolate companies and rock candy. And when they canceled the model and, and wheeled it out into the parking lot for the birds to pick out the peanuts and so forth, um, my mom brought home a box of rock candy, which I was pretty lit up about. And much of it became um, hung on our Christmas tree as beautiful icicle-looking ornaments, but a big bag of it went to school with me, probably unbeknownst to my mom, and handed out at recess to my friends. And I was um, a a pretty desirable item that day (laughs) at school. (laughs) I was beaming, I suppose. So but you, she brought home not only the rock candy, but she brought home one of the models, right? For uh, Yes, and I didn't see that. At least I don't remember seeing that as a kid, but we, we found it later. Um, and she had showed it to me and, and, you know, told me someday this will be yours, but it's, uh, you know, it's kind of three foot by three foot, and it's deteriorated. Some of the candy is still on it, and, and um, you know, it's, it's not in great shape, but we have it in our little basement. Is it real candy that's on the... You, you yeah, the some of it model. is real candy. It's been kind of shellacked in place or whatever. <laughs> and there's a little you know, miniature train on it, and it's pretty, uh, pretty cute. Wow. You know, on eBay, um, <laughs> you're looking at four or five... You'll make me a deal, easily. huh? A deal. A deal will be made tonight. <laughs> <laughs> nah, not yet. So, but she brought them some other things over the years, too, that um, you got to play with or use or at least see. What else did yeah. you bring home? Well, at one point they were working on uh, the Carousel of Progress, and it must have been in close proximity to working on the, the Pirates as well, and they were casting hands for these um, mannequins, basically. And so the rejects came home, and um, one pair of the rejects was my mom's hands. It had a big wrinkle in one of the hands, and they're rubber. They're wiggly jiggly rubber, and I held these hands as a witch at, for Halloween under my oversized bathrobe. So I had these very long hands that jiggled, and um, I was a popular kid that time also. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, for the 60s, you had some pretty high-tech Halloween uh, outfits. I did. I really loved Halloween, and my mom enjoyed creating these fanciful costumes. Another time I was a Chinaman and wore this Chinaman's mask that came home. <laughs> And you seem to know what that mask is uh, from I, as well. I would lay some money that, um, based on the time and um, that this was a Chinaman's mask, that um going to be a, a, an animatronic of Confucius in this restaurant that would uh, dole out pearls of wisdom. And I'm pretty sure, based on the time, that uh, mm-hmm. a full-size Chinaman's mask was probably a prototype for the Confucius model that would have been in that restaurant. Mm-hmm. So maybe I went as Confucius that year. It was smelly though and hot. That mask. <laughs> <laughs> and you got some, you got some stuff from the World's Fair too. You got some uh, Neanderthal masks. Ah uh, yes. Okay. I didn't wear that one. You didn't wear that, that was one. Just too much for me. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know what became of those masks. My mom was always playing pranks on her colleagues, so it probably went that way. It probably went that way. Mm-hmm. Um, did you find any other um, interesting uh, artifacts when you were going through your your uh, mom's house? Well, we have her retirement book that was you know promised to me before she passed away, and that's uh, some of those pictures and drawings are, from her colleagues are in our our book about her. Okay. And um, 
So you've met... And um, she had hats and gloves and all this apparel, you know. She was known for her grooming, so mm-hmm. that was fun stuff. Um, she was known for her jewelry, and, and she was pretty innovative with uh, both props and, and grooming. At what point when you're growing up did it change from, hey, my mom's not like all the other mothers mm-hmm. and the mothers on TV, to, hey, it's pretty cool that my mom's working with bandsaws and uh, toxic chemicals. <laughs> I don't uh, think that was ever cool. (laughs) But I think when Disneyland was in its heyday and my friends were starting to get excited about things like the submarine ride and the Lincoln exhibit and the haunted house and the pirate ride, and I could say my mom did all that stuff, the Tiki Birds, um, I was pretty proud of her. And then when I was, I think, 14, they got sent to the New York World's Fair and, um, you know, given red carpet treatment. And even though I wasn't with them, it was pretty exciting that they got to go, you know, as courtesy of Walt and, and his wife and hang out with them. Did you uh, meet Walt Disney uh, a few times while you were growing up? I did. I can't say I met him, but he was around, you know. And I do have a book that he signed and, and made out to me, to Pam, from Walt Disney. Wow. And um, he was sort of like everybody's favorite grandpa. Now, um, after your your mom passed on, you've put together a tribute book, yeah. which has a lot of memories from um, Disney legends such as uh, um, Tony Baxter and Exitensio and uh, Blaine Gibson, right, um, and so on, Marty Scalar, right. Um, of those, do you have um, one of the stories that you like a great deal that you found out because you found out some things about your mom when you're putting together the book, right? Uh huh. Do you have a story that you particularly like um, that you found out while putting together this book? Well, my favorite drawings and stories are from Blaine Gibson, who became such a dear friend of hers, and I love hearing him talk about their collegial relationship early on and how much respect he had for her, and he said, uh, I would build them and she would make them come alive. Speaking of the pirates and the presidents and the the, uh, families in the Carousel of Progress and so forth, and and that really touched me because of um, their mutual respect for one another and caring for one another over the years that became a dear relationship towards the end of their lives. <clears throat> well, okay. Well, did I miss But so many people referred to her body humor and how she could keep up with the guys, and it became even clearer to me that she had these two sides to her. There was this very proper woman, proper lady, and... Um, you know, people would treat her with a great deal of respect and admiration, and then there was this very body, bodacious side that could keep up with the guys, and um, she had this uh, wicked sense of humor, as my husband would put it. Now, both both of those sides come through very uh-huh. clearly and in intending ways in the in the book that you've just put out. Yeah, the book really really brought that together for me. So it's like a little little piece of her everyone carried, and it all came together in this tapestry as we were doing the book. One one of her colleagues said, well, now you see why she kept her family separate from her, her work colleagues. Because <laughs> I knew so many of these names, and I didn't really know them. Wow. I wouldn't recognize them, but I knew their names, and I knew bits and pieces about them. And as we, um, you know, pieced together some of the cards that Fred Jerger and she shared and that she and Jim Sarno shared, she had all these um, pretty funny relationships with these guys, Rolly Crump. The card with from Rollies, uh, um, I laughed when I saw that in the book. Yeah, there's a bunch great. of funny ones. Yeah, they had a, a really fun uh, relationship. Well, tell our listeners a little bit about um, 
how to get a copy of this book? Through our website at this point or come to our events. And our website is imagineerharriet.com. That's with one T in Harriet. And um, we'll be on Amazon soon. And don't you have a, an event at the uh, Walt Disney Family Yes, Museum? we sure do. I don't want to miss that one. That's in, on March 28th. We've been invited to speak about my mom exclusively for Women's History Month. And that's on Sunday, March 28th at 3 o'clock. And the tickets aren't yet for sale for that, but they will be probably within the next couple weeks. If there, is there any other story that you want to share? Um, let's see. It's just been such a delightful ride. It's been a, a kind of a Mad Hatter's ride, piecing all these stories together since she passed away. I didn't expect it to be so joyful. You know, I, I miss her terribly, and, and we were shocked and taken aback by the fact that she didn't make it through the heart surgery, and yet we've been so uplifted by all these stories. Um, so it's it's been a, a joy ride, and I've really enjoyed the connections with her people, you included, and a, such a strong connection with Blaine and Jim Sarno, who we, we hadn't met before her memorial, and now he's like family, Scott Wolf. There's a whole team of, of her people, and, of course, my co-author, Don Perry. So um, that's been the the bonus for me in putting this book together and piecing myself together. It's been kind of grief through immersion and uh, immersing myself not only in, in her story, but her people. I'm glad about I'm glad about the connections that you've been able to make. Yeah, it's been very heartwarming. And it kind of keeps her spirit alive for all of us. It's kind of like we're all um, sharing in who she was and, and what she was about and keeping that sense of inspiration and sparkle going forward that website again is www.imagineerharriet.com you can also find pam burns claire and her co-author don perry at the walt disney family museum on march 28 2010 tickets are available at the museum's website i want to thank our guests today bob gurr rolly crump Blaine Gibson, and Pam Burns-Claire. If you've enjoyed this podcast, make sure to leave me a note over at the Window to the Magic Forums. One last thing. This past summer, I edited up the home movies from 50 families, 50 different trips to Disneyland, and assembled the best clips into an hour-long tour of Disneyland in the 1950s. And so if you've ever wanted to visit the park 50 years ago, you can do so now through this video. It's available at the window to the magic.com store. Look for the DVD titled The Original Disneyland, the 1950s. Thanks again for listening. Sell your family, friends, and coworkers all know you're the person to ask about planning their next Disney trip. But if you get excited about anything Disney related, they roll their eyes. Well, that's just rude. You know what you need? You need to hang out with some people who appreciate Disney the same way you do. And here's your chance. It's DPN Westfest 2010. The Disney Podcast Network invites you to join the fun April 29th through May 2nd as Disney fans from around the world gather to spend some quality time together in Anaheim, California at the park that started it all, Disneyland. There will be special meets hosted by DPN hosts and fans, plenty of opportunities to make lifelong memories, and, backed by popular demand, the DPN Westfest Banquet. 
To find out more about DPN Westfest, go to dpnwestfest.com. Go ahead, schedule those vacation days, make your hotel reservations, and book your flights for DPN Westfest April 29th through May 2nd. Because, well, face it, you need to hang out with some people who are normal. Big thanks go out to DJ for once again showing us that the wonderful world of Disney is a magical and amazing place. If you enjoyed this show, please do two things for me. Please send us an email, or you can stop by WTTMforums.com and tell us that you liked the show. Also, if you're interested in hearing more about Harriet, and this time hearing it live, Join Window to the Magic on Sunday, March 28th at the Walt Disney Family Museum as we, along with Harriet's daughter and Don Perry, author of Working with Walt, Interviews with Disney Legends, celebrate Women's History Month by learning all about the First Lady of WDI. Please visit WTTMforums.com for additional information and visit WaltDisney.org to purchase tickets. And speaking of tickets, the Walt Disney Family Museum has graciously provided Window to the Magic with four admission tickets and four tickets to their film of the month. We will be giving these tickets away to listeners who plan to visit the Walt Disney Family Museum sometime soon. If you're going to be visiting the museum and you're interested in entering the giveaway, please send an email to wdfm at windowtothemagic.com and tell us that you plan to visit the museum. Winners will be chosen at random and will receive one admission ticket and one film ticket. Entries for this contest must be received by March 31st, 2010. Once we have the winners, we'll figure out all the details. Again, send an email to WDFM, that's Walt Disney Family Museum, at windowtothemagic.com. And with that, I would like to thank all of you for listening to A Window to the Magic as we enjoy our fifth year of bringing you the best audio adventures from throughout the wonderful world of Disney. As I do every time, I would like to thank the Window to the Magic DVD of the Month Club members, those who have purchased the Window to the Magic podcast app, the fine folks over at Destinations in Florida Travel, that's destinationsinflorida.com slash WTTM, and Bluestone Creative Group, that's bluestonecreativegroup.com, for helping us to make the magic happen. We always appreciate your feedback, so be sure to email or call us soon. Email us at podcast at windowtothemagic.com or wdfm at windowtothemagic.com to enter the contest. Call us at 206-984-9886, follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash WTTM, and of course, you can always add us as your friend on Facebook. Remember to visit iTunes to subscribe to the Window to the Magic family of podcasts and to purchase the Window to the Magic podcast app for iPhone and iPod Touch. Just search WTTM in iTunes and you will find everything there. Be sure to join us again next week as I will once again delve into my iTunes collection for another Disneyous non sequitorium. But for now, this has been A Window to the Magic, show 
number 227. And I'll see you next time. This podcast is a member of the Friends of the Magic family of podcasts. For information about this show and others like it, please visit friendsofthemagic.com and click on the podcasts link on the main page. Some days you eat the bear, and some days the bear eats you. But always dress for the hunt! Come to Kungaloo! Surround yourself. Hi, Paul. It's Kristen Wilds from Walnut Creek, California, and I am just here to say um, I am extremely happy bouncing up and down while I was in your book meeting today um, because, well, Captain Eel is back at Disneyland. My friend told me, and I started jumping up and down. I didn't believe her. I went on the Disneyland website. Pop, there it is. So I just want to say I'm so happy, and thank you, and keep on going with the good showness as always. With the magic. Oh!